It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You think about the person in your life, when you started, believing you more than anyone else. They're the ones that made the sacrifices. When I walk out, my old man's next to me. They're not just looking at you, they're looking at what made you. Now, what I'm talking about our fucking game. I want them talking about us. Oh, enjoy your lunch, 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 lunch. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. Lads, can we agree that uh, Matthew Stewart Cash is a piece of shit who will one day get what's coming to him, possibly through the means of a furious Christian Romero two-footer on the 9th of March 2024 at Villa Park. Is that fair to say? I think so. You want to meet violence with violence, Wendy. Is that, is that the kind of person you become? I'm, I'm not a, an eye-for-an-eye kind of person, generally. <laughs> uh, but it's two players now. This is a pattern. This is a pattern. It's mm. not okay. Everyone was just like, Romero's going to get him. I don't know. I've lost all faith of Romero getting him. I don't know. I, I, just, think, I just think Romero will bottle it in. He'll end up getting sent off tackling someone stupidly and it'll be the wrong person. <laughs> Imagine if he got the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Pete Romero. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he gets a McGinn, I'm not going to complain too much. <laughs> He's a but prick I do, as well. Uh, it it was very kind of agricultural tactics from from Emery. Let's just let's just start kicking them and see what happens. And it yeah. seems to be a, a pattern that a lot of teams have, have undertaken this year. So so when Cash did Doherty, was that under Gerard? Because I remember thinking that um, Gerard's Villa were really over aggressive. He sort of sent them out really wound up. That was Gerard um, for sure. Yeah, this time around, I was quite shocked by how physical Villa were in this game and how violent they were. I didn't expect that. I really didn't expect that. Um, I- I'm joined by my psychic best friend, Bardi, and our tactics guy, Nathan A. Clark. Hello, lads. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got an awful lot to talk about. We've obviously lost a game, and yet it doesn't feel too bad, to me at least. Um, you you guys might might differ. Um, Bardi, when you saw that starting eleven, <laughs> what was your reaction? I was pumped. That was <laughs> it. Was it was freedom? It was the 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 old the old regime had gone. That was it. Movement forward. That's it. I was delighted that a positive step had been taken, and I was willing for us to go out there and just give it a good old ruddy good slap and see and see what happens. And I was all for it. And it was just like that first twenty minutes. There was a bit of freedom. There was some. It was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. And then. 
Unfortunately, Matty Cash got involved and we went back to the same old Spurs. Um, but before that, it was brilliant to watch. Nathan, I think you um, did a, a tweet just sort of laughing at the line. <laughs> <laughs> I was out, so I couldn't do my normal my normal graphic. And I figured that I figured that everyone probably understood where everyone was playing, that Bentacle as the only recognised, <laughs> typically recognised centre midfielder would probably be the deepest one, that Emerson Royale and Davies would probably be the centre-backs. I uh, It brought me genuine deep joy because, like, I don't know how many times, and obviously we're still doing the thing where we talk about our three previous coaches, right? How many times... Um, under Conte Mourinho and even briefly under Nuno is like, oh, well, we've lost this technical player that we are hugely stylistically reliant on. Time to <laughs> time to wheel out the old sluggers to, <laughs> to just make this a non-event, you know? And this is like, this is related to the the thing that Boss Coglu said that, that you and uh, Chris Summers have talked about throughout the training ground. It's like, when your back's up against the wall, um, and, and in that example, he's talking about your job is on the line. But in this scenario, it's like, when you don't have your first choice entire 11, what type of football do you play? What type of squad do you build? What type of 11 do you put out there? I mentioned last week that that a little bit of the stuff around play style is PR, but it's completely, completely vindicated, not just by the 11, but the football that we played. I, um, I feel differently to you, Wendy, about this result and this performance. I think it was fucking brilliant. <laughs> I, I, I feel... Um, I have felt less happy after several wins than I feel, uh, you know, about about this game. Uh, I think we played some excellent, excellent attacking football um, with a cobbled together string of players. Um, I feel feel so so good about where we're going, and I am um, in in adoration of our coach. I I would like to say that my feelings about the result over time and as the days have passed. So had we recorded this on Monday, I think I think I would have been where Nathan is. But now in the cold light of day, I'm thinking about the looming game of Man City and the possibility of going four games in a row defeated. So that's <laughs> uh, post game. Before the game, I was willing to accept a defeat because the, this manager has decided that these two players aren't for him anymore. Get out. Can't play. <laughs> we, we move. I'd rather put a winger in centre midfield. I'd rather play all the fullbacks instead of playing this centre back. So I was delighted with that. And I was ready to lose because I've always keep saying you're not going to learn anything by playing the same idiots, the same triangle of death. You're not going to learn anything. So let's get them out. Let's move on. Let's give Brian Hill some time. Let's see Kuluseski in the middle. That kind of stuff. I'd rather lose learning something. Um, but now, now we did lose and City's looming. I'm like, oh, we could really have done with those three points. But I still don't believe that we would have got those three points had those guys started. You know what I mean? So I'm all right with it. But I'm not as I'm not as kind of skipping along the street thinking everything's going to be all right. I, yeah, I think the decision to go with Royale over Dyer is like not a not a criticism of Dyer's performance against Wolves. It's not a you've been benched for four performances. It's a tactical decision about the high line, right? Is that we're going to play with the high line? There's going to be space from behind. Um, they're going to bring on Leon Bailey in this game. Um, they're going to play over the top to Watkins, and there's going to be space in behind. Um, so therefore, Royale is faster on the turn than than Dyer is. And I also think that like we conceded two goals and a third offside goal from our inability to defend like the ball into the box, right? 
Um, and I'm not. I'm also not saying if Eric Dyer was there, we wouldn't have conceded any of those chances because we've seen that happen. But probably, probably he might have done a better job in the air uh, on a, on a couple of occasions than than, Di- than Davies and, and Royale managed. Um, so it's a gamble that you can say didn't pay off, but I think it also enabled some really good football. And if if we'd put away our chances, if we'd been if we'd been um, onside by a couple of yards on a couple of occasions. Um, we could have won three one, three two, four two, whatever, and um, and it didn't pay off. But I could, I could imagine it having paid off, and and that would have been um substantial. So yeah, I like it. I do think this game has highlighted. So when we when we lost Kane, we spoke about how we're going to replace Kane, and we said we don't because you can't. So you spread those goals about, mm. and I think this game was evidence that we need to spread the goals around we can't keep relying on Sun to be this incredible finisher we need the other individuals Kulisevsky Johnson these guys they really need to start chipping in and I think ultimately we we didn't lose this game because Benton got got whacked but we lost it because of our inability to for to score goals to spread the goals around basically Lacelso scored one but we needed somebody else other than Sun to step up I do feel a little as though and I know this feels like sour grapes and like it's very easy to say. It was kind of a case of millimeters. Like Kulusevsky hits the post, it's so close. Poro hits the post with a really good effort. The offsides, you know, that they're, they're such close calls. Son's really good normally at just being bang on level. Yeah, and he just wasn't quite. Um, Johnson runs through. He takes a nice touch and he gets Great a chance. And, he, and and he, and he he nearly nearly pokes it through Martinez's legs. There were a couple of... So I think um, there were some moments for lack of composure. Brian Hill lacked composure on one occasion. Um, Udogi, don't quite know what he was trying to do <laughs> with his right foot short. Was he trying to dink it, the keeper, yeah. I think? But yeah. it just went horribly wrong. I also think um, there's one um, quite late on where uh, Lacelso plays a really nice ball through to Brennan Johnson. Yeah. And he like he holds the ball up and waits for players to join him. Like takes his first touch really slowly out to the touchline. If you watch it back, if he absolutely steams in, he's one on one, and he could like he can beat that man and get a shot away. And I felt like there were a couple of moments like that, a couple of instances like that where we create a really good situation. Yeah, we create a really nice situation when we don't quite follow through on it. So there's a bit of kind of. naivety lack of confidence lack of flow perhaps but like nathan says we're so close we're so nearly there it was so close to clicking and we did that without our first choice center backs without our first choice midfield three who started the season and been so impressive and that's really that's really great and i think we should be excited about what's to come off the back of that you know i said last week what's the point in playing lacelso his heart's not in it for me he was man of the match i thought he was outstanding I, that might be the best i've seen lacelso play for spurs to be honest he <laughs> i didn't expect him to play the sar role that was interesting so kulosevsky played the madison role and uh lacelso played the sar role so they they switched sides. Kulusevski, which actually meant the Son switched sides as well with his with his pressing. He pressed from the left. Kulusevski from the right in the four four two. Good spot. Um, uh, yeah, I did. I didn't expect Lacelso to come in and play the side role. He did it really well. He was everywhere. He was all action. He was making um, useful recoveries, and then he was playing punchy balls forward often inexplicably with his left foot because he has no ability to use his right uh, <laughs> but he makes them work and he made them work and he was really really good and then he scores that goal which showed fantastic technique to kind of get his head over the ball and keep it down drilled it in 
Uh, and you could see the kind of... You saw what it meant to him. Like, there was a real uh, release Relief. for him, I felt. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the players looked delighted for him as well. Uh, so that was really pleasing. And, and we need to talk about Brian Hill. Uh, Bardi, what did you think of Brian Hill's performance? I've been an advocate for Brian Hill for quite some time. I like his tenacity. I like the way he runs up and down and his energy. I do think he lacks a little bit of finesse. Maybe that will come with time. But I've always enjoyed his energy. I've always enjoyed the way he can just get up and down the pitch. I think that is. I think that's really important for, for our forward players. So mm. it was nice to see that. I still think sometimes... It's, it is like an adult playing football in the back garden with a child. You can just hand him off a little bit too easy. Obviously, that's never going to change. I think he he needs to understand that or develop a way around it or just use it to his advantage. Um, but it was it was it was it was good. I think he did. I think he did fine there. I'm not saying he's a long term solution, but I think he did fine. He's a genuine option, isn't he? Yeah. And that's that's all we need him to be right now. And I honestly, I lost count of the number of times that we kind of escaped down the left hand side due to Hill and the Celso and Nudogi showing fantastic technical ability, moving the ball quickly, sensibly sometimes delaying it and, and going back to where it's gone to then go forward again. I thought they were so impressive as a trio. In fact, my favourite move of the match was the um, Hoibier-Udogi interplay uh, with Johnson, which then found Son, who who curled the ball into the far post, but it was marginally offside. I thought that was a glorious team move. Really impressive. Um, we do need to talk about Bentancourt. I was saying for the last few game, the last few weeks, that we shouldn't be risking starting Bentancourt anytime soon because you never know he might have a recurrence of his the injury. Little did I know that that Matty Cash would would do his ankle, and it seems like he's going to be out for an extended period, another two two and a half months. Yeah, reported by um, Sammy Mockbell, who is pretty reliable on these things. Um, such a pity because he was showing some really nice deft touches in the number six role. Yeah. I don't know if you if that little graph you sometimes you post it, the little yellow and blue graph that shows where stuff happens and on the timeline. But it just felt when he went a little bit of hope died as well with us. I, I kind of felt like we, we carried on creating consistently throughout the match after he'd gone, but that's not to say we didn't miss him because he was really, really good. So um our our expected goal production did dry up um a little um in the period of time between um in the period of time between uh, Bentacle going off and then um, the late push towards the end once we were a goal down and it's and it's close. Um, but I also think that we came close to creating several good chances that were ruled offside. And, I, and on that, like, I want to say, um, yeah, okay, uh, Kulusevski had 0.7 expected goals. Johnson had 0.6 expected goals. Um, uh Udogi had 0.3 expected goals and, 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 um, you know, you can hope for better finishing there. But also, like, um, I don't want to get too, um, I don't want to get too whiny about the offsides because that's how Villa defend and they're very, very, very good at, at, at playing the offside trap. So those are moments that Villa have outplayed us. Mm, but they're also yeah. moments that we've, we've come close to putting together successful moves. I thought Hoybjerg was fine as the number six in this game. I thought he was perfectly good. He wasn't as good as Bentacore, but he was good in my opinion. Um, yeah. I thought that we continued to play well as a team um, um, between between that moment and sort of 60 minutes well, when we conceded the second goal. Brian Hill went three for four on dribbles, um, which is which is good, which is good. Um, it's tough for me because like I, I like Brian Hill. I think he's been underplayed at times when we've needed more creative technical players, um, you know, previously. Um, and I sort of had an eye for whether because we're missing a profile of a of a of a dribbly 
predominantly left-sided winger, um, a 1v1 specialist. And it's like, could Hill be that player? He's shown glimpses before and he played well in this game, but he, he, um, I want, I'm holding high standards for that role, right? I want someone who is going to take the game by the scruff of the neck, who's going to demand the ball, who's going to, even if it's low percentage plays, who's going to occasionally try to force the play and, and mm-hmm. try to be the main character. And, and Hill isn't, isn't, isn't that player, or at least isn't that player yet. This is his, his third league start ever. And obviously his first, um, under Postacoglu. So want to see him play a couple more games and see how he gets on there. But I thought he played well, not well enough that I'm like, oh, we don't need to go and buy a, buy, you know, Noosa, um, in January type, type situation. Um, I'd also like to talk about Kulisewski. Um, we had a question on uh, sure, Kulisewski from J Piper seven, who said, in the past, you've mentioned the value of players being able to provide depth at multiple positions. Mm. Does Kulisevsky as creative midfield depth to Madison open up the squad building options to strengthen right wing as opposed to a backup attacking midfielder? Will we see Kulisevsky occasionally back in midfield going forward? This is an interesting one for me, Kulisevsky, um, in that role. How, actually, Leah, how, did, how do you guys feel like Kulisevsky played? I still found, I still felt like he kept drifting into his old position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Kept, yeah, I, I still like he was almost looking for comfort. He's that's what he's accustomed to. So you had to keep remind, you had to remind yourself that he wasn't playing wide because he was, always seemed to be wide. If you see what I mean, he was. He was like, moved there later in the game as well, but mm. I still think before he'd officially moved position, he still drifted wide on a handful of occasions. Yeah, but um, I thought I, I thought he played well. I thought he gave us something. I thought he yeah. I thought he played. I thought he played well. He needed that goal. I think that goal would have would have capped a really nice performance. I thought he was outstanding. I thought, oh. other than Lacelso, I thought he was our best player. Um, I think what I liked about his performance. So I was at this game. I, 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 uh, Jamesy, shout out to Jamesy, flogged me his ticket at the last minute because um, he couldn't make it. <clears throat> I think what I appreciated more being at the game, I have watched it back, but more from live is how much he got battered by Villa. Yeah. And he took hit after hit after hit after hit and he kept coming back for more. And he was, you know, that run he made on like 75 minutes where he challenges on the edge of his own box and then carries the ball literally all the way up the other end and uh, gets a shot away just typified his performance. He was a complete and utter Trojan throughout, just battled and battled and battled. Had Dinia on strings. I mean, I think Dinia's a really good fullback and Kulisevsky had the beating of him pretty much every single time. Um, I, I thought he was really good and I'm very excited um, with the the flexibility. I think the more tactical flexibility we have in our players' uh, ability to cover multiple roles, the better for the reasons that Jay Piper has said in the question. You know, it allows the squad building a bit more flexibility. Um, and I do like Kulisewski in this role. It's interesting. Oh, it's certainly just on the flexibility aspect, I think, between the Celso and Kulisewski, um, uh, although obviously the Celso played a different role, we aren't needing desperately uh, a second choice number 10 a Madison backup we have that between those two players I think pretty comfortably and that's as long as the Celso stays right sure 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 and so yeah Kulisovsky is really interesting for me so so he spoke after the game uh, and not for the first time about how he views that as his primary role how much he enjoys playing there how much he feels at home Mm. there which is very interesting given that as Barley rightly points out he repeatedly drifted over to a wide area he loves that pocket yeah I think I think um I'd like to talk about Kulisevsky as a wide player for a moment uh, to, to recover sort of previously trodden ground. It's like um, when he's got the ball with momentum, when he gets a bit of space and he can build some momentum on the ball, 
Um, he can do really special things. Carry the ball 20 yards, beat two players, um, <clears throat> cut in and shoot, or deliver a really good back cro- uh, cross post, or even occasionally get to the byline for a cut back. Um, and then in other scenarios, when he's playing wide, we see he receives the ball under pressure, he holds it up, he plays it back. He doesn't do anything more than that because he needs that momentum to work with, right? And so when he plays takes that skill set and he plays in a in a central midfield or a number 10 role um when he's receiving the ball under pressure or or in tight spaces um now he has the option to do other things right he can play a a first time pass he can play a flick on he can play a two touch move he can look to combine immediately and i I imagine that must be really relieving for him to be able Mm -hmm. to to be in to make use of every pass he receives in some way but because he's because there's no space for him, he can't do the big Kulosevsky play. He can't do the 20, 30 yard carry unless he's on the counter at the end of the game, as we saw in, in that moment you described, or he's later moved into the wing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think there's a significant trade off there. Um, and it is interesting to me that he so much seems to prefer playing central than wide um, because. Because I still think that his best performances, and obviously we're dealing with a small sample here, I do think his best performances have come wise rather in the couple of games that he's played in the central area. Um, definitely feel his impact a little less, but he created chances and he got chances. Um, I'm not saying he played badly by any means. I just think that's an interesting situation there. I, I do think it's worth noting that um, in the period where Benton Cole was on the pitch, so Kulisevsky playing central, yeah, uh, Lo Celso scores, Kulisevsky hits the post. That's two central midfielders getting on the score sheet yeah. or coming very close to doing so. We've not really had that much goal threat from midfield other than the occasional Madison moment. Um, Saar at the start of the season was making more runs into the box, but they really dropped off. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like him; those two being there really added something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the other thing to touch on was um, uh, Johnson and Hill played on their natural-footed side, outside-footed side, and I was confused by that when I first watched the match, but I think, looking back, that it actually makes a lot of sense, and I'm quite happy with it. Uh, it's about Villa's high line, right? So if you're playing a packed box... Um, and they've got centre-backs in their box, and, and the the winger gets the ball in a wide area, the only thing they can really do is cross, and then you're crossing into a packed area, you're crossing into Sun, he's rarely going to beat his man in the air, right? But in this scenario, you've got a situation where Villa are starting their defence outside of the box, and so you play the through ball to the winger, and then the ability to play the ball first time into space for Sun to run onto makes a lot more sense, uh, rather than having to check back onto their strong foot and then do something once the opposition have then settled. So um didn't really pay off. There was one moment where Hill played the first time cross to Sun that was quite threatening, but just went behind him or over him. Beautiful cross, that was a um, beautiful cross. But I, I really like the thinking there. It just didn't pay off. But I, um, this is a rare example <laughs> where I prefer uh, prefer wingers on their outside-footed side. So that was a good tweak. I, I do also think that Kulosevsky being on the right of the midfield three had an impact on that decision to play on the right side. Because if you have Hill and Kulosevsky playing out the right, both very one-footed players. Both checking in. You can, yeah, it's it's tricky. I, I think you'd struggle. Good shot. Um uh, we actually had a question about that from JB. He thinks that uh, Hill being quite so one-footed was quite costly for us. He said uh, he clearly isn't comfortable striking the ball with his right foot as he comes across the face of goal. This cost Spurs at least two chances. Did you see the same thing? How can a player rise to this level without some degree of two-footedness? And and the thing is, we see it all the time, you know. 
you see one-footed players all the time. We've got Kulisevsky. We've who, to be fair, does use his right. Uh, Lo Celso is one of the most one-footed players I've ever seen at Spurs, like the Miller <laughs> levels of one-footedness. Um, we've got others who who are right-footed and don't use their left. So I, I, th- I, I think it's a little unfair just to sort of pin that on on Brian Hill entirely. But I do take the point that he doesn't want to use his right. It's an easy thing to to lay on left-footed players just because it's 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 obvious. But you're right. Delhi used to do it all the time. He would never do anything on his left. Yeah. He would never even turn towards his left. I um I think it's generally something that that players are overcriticised for because it, um obviously you only have so much training time. If you talk to Harry Brooks about this, he'll say players should be doing um out of training sessions solo work, and I, and I accept that. That's shifted my view a little bit. But within the remit of how much players do typically train, uh, there's only so much technical development players typically go through in their senior career. So um, all that matters is what a player achieves. And and, and um, uh, Leo Messi is a very one-footed player, and I wouldn't criticise him too much for not having a very good weak foot, for example. Right? It wouldn't it wouldn't dramatically change his game, in my opinion. Um, so I don't generally like to say, oh, this player should develop their weak foot because it's bad, because maybe that's time they could otherwise put on to getting an even better cross with their dominant foot, etc. With that said, the way that Hill plays football, which is twisting and turning and receiving on the mm. turn, he, I believe, would personally really benefit from developing a right foot. More than Kulosevsky, who... I'm going to move it on to my left and there's nothing you can do about it. More than the Celso, who is, uh, what did you describe? Like a Vespa, uh, a purse snatcher buddy who, who gets the ball and then explodes in a straight line with the ball, right? Was that me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you call him a purse, like a, a Vespa riding. Uh, personally, he gets the ball and he uh, sprints 30 yards with it in a straight line. Those two players don't desperately need a right foot, but for me, the way that Hill is like a twisty, turny player without being hugely explosively fast, um, he would he would really benefit from improving his right foot, in my opinion. So it's less a less a criticism of Hill because I'm not leaving it at the other players either, uh, and more more an opportunity that I'm I'm think mm-hmm. that that's what we're we're all collectively spotting. Oh, if he had a right foot, that would be really beneficial to his game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. It would, it would be a real sort of ceiling raiser for him mm. um, if he could work on his right. Um, you've mentioned it already, both of you. But what did we think of the Emerson Royale? centre-back experiment I, I don't know that he's played any centre-back in his career or if he has it's been on the right side of the back three yeah uh, under Conte a couple of times right uh, late in game maybe one start um so Villa don't press the the first line of the opposition's possession or they they did towards the end of the game once we fatigued which is actually a point we need to talk about right um um so you have to give the caveat of Davies and and Royale did what they did to under very little pressure having said that I thought they both did very well they they made use of the fact that they had time on the ball um Royale for me is a very uh complicated player to talk about on a technical level um because like I guess it's kind of you know the stereotypical flashy Brazilian player thing right he has technical upside but he he doesn't have the technical flaw he's very inconsistent so he'll do like a really cool drag back and he'll do a 45 yard flat diagonal and he'll and 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 you know the no look pass and stuff like that but he'll also fumble an easy five yard ball occasionally as well so he's a a very technically inconsistent player with a high upside I thought he made use of his time on the ball so that that floor was significantly raised 
and he played some nice passes forward. Ben Davies, not too dissimilar, I guess, played again, um, did really well, played some nice passes forward. Defensively, uh, both <laughs> collectively, especially quite poor. Um, you know, yeah, it is what it is in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I felt like Davis held things together largely pretty well, but for the Watkins goal, I, I don't think, I don't think Watkins scores that if Van der Ven's on the pitch. I think Davis deciding or Romero. not. Or Romero, yeah, absolutely. Davis deciding not to follow Watkins out when he's the only attacking player at that point um, near him, I think was a big mistake. I felt, I just think Davis switched off, to be honest. I think he wasn't focused on, on the task at hand in, in that moment and that allowed Watkins to then play that uh, little one-two. Um, I thought Emerson Royal was a disaster from set pieces, a complete and utter disaster. And I think, I do think that Eric Dyer will come back in for next week because of Haaland. And, and we, oh, you know, Haaland's massive and we've got no tall players now. Benton calls out and, and <laughs> Dyer's out of the team. He's also very like, fast. I, I, He's also very fast, but I, I think we were so disastrous from set pieces defensively that, so bad, man. that Dyer, I think, has to come back in. So Royale had the job of, of being one of the players defending the six-yard box. Um, for the headed chance that Watkins had, he, he Watkins is being marked by Kulusevski, I guess, as our tallest player at mm-hmm. that point. And Kulusevski get, gets blocked off and Watkins makes this run to Emerson Royale's area. It's hilarious to watch it back because Emerson Royale just shits himself. He doesn't know what to do at all. It's like, here's a guy who doesn't know how to defend set pieces. Bless him. He was put in a really difficult position. Like you, I thought he did well on the ball. I th- you know, Aside from that that absolutely abysmal little dribble in the last minute, oh which I'm not going to hold against him because it was a last minute. Yeah. Apart from that, he was fine on the ball. It's just the lack of height. Yeah. It just doesn't know where to stand. It doesn't know where to... It's like um, a celebrity going to Strictly Come Dancing. They just don't don't know where to position their body because the offside goal that Watkins scored with his header, it's just like how... Just as well he was an inch offside because just how could you... How could he get that angle? How could he get that run (laughs) on you? And then just the way he was dominated by the the aerial force that is Pau Torres, it's just that's just another um, example. That they're just not a back four. They're just not a defensive unit. They don't know what they're doing. Set pieces were just a total freebie for Villa all game. Um, yeah. We just had no tall players on the pitch at all, really, did we? It was um, yeah. And they've got good uh, set piece takers in in uh, Douglas Louise, who was brilliant, and uh, and Dina as well can take a good set piece. So. We we were essentially punished for being I don't small. Think, I don't think Villa are on a subtitle charge now. They they've got they've really blown some smoke up their own asses, and they reckon they're on a title charge. They're not. They scored two soft goals against a defense that wasn't there, and were lucky to to get the win. But they got some decent players. They got a decent manager who who knows what he's doing. But yeah, they're not in a title challenge. Uh, we've got a few more talking points from the Villa game, but before we do that, uh, last week, I think, I mentioned that we'd had an email from a listener who said that they were getting adverts about oil on the podcast and to let us know if, if you got any of those or any adverts that you think didn't really feel um, like they fit with the extra inches ethos. Um, you, you certainly contacted us in your hordes. Um, we had lots and lots of emails to say... <laughs> Barney's dog is fuming about the oil ads. Absolutely like fuming. <laughs> we had millions of emails uh, about the the BP ads. 
and other other companies. Uh, so one of them was from Ben Bowman, who is an academic with some research experience, who's consulted on climate change politics, adaptation and mitigation widely. And he's supported organisations, small and large, including government organisations, such as the Council of Europe, European Parliament and Canadian government, but especially local groups, schools and community networks. And Ben sent me a really thought-provoking email. And so I decided what would be the best thing would be to jump on a call with him. And what you'll hear now is my chat with Ben Bowman about greenwashing. Ben, thank you so much to, for taking the time to join me. Um, so context for listeners... Last week, we had a chat on the podcast about the adverts that some listeners were receiving at the beginning, middle and end of the pod. And we have a selection of categories that we can uh, choose to receive adverts about and essentially block. A bunch of our listeners had written to us saying, uh, we're getting oil adverts, we're getting uh, petrol adverts, which I thought was strange because I was pretty sure we ticked those on the block list. Uh, And I got a very interesting email from Ben. Ben, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Ben Bowman. Um, I'm an academic. Uh, One of the topics that I research is uh, climate change politics. And especially um, just in kind of the the research that I do, um, working with young people, not just young activists, but young people in in their communities or in their schools about thinking about climate change. So I have to really keep up to date with a lot of these topics like, Mm. um, yeah, like what greenwashing is and how these companies, um, yeah, act uh, to try and get away with the things that they do. Yeah. So what you said in your email was fascinating to me. I mean, I've heard of the concept of greenwashing. And obviously, I know it goes on. I, I pay attention to the news. But uh, you said something really interesting, which is they probably categorize themselves as um, sustainability or something like that. And lo and behold, one of the unticked boxes on our block list is green solutions. And I'm imagining that some of these companies that our listeners are hearing adverts for. Uh, categorize their ads as green solutions. Why would that be, Ben? Well, um, so sports washing in general um, is when you've got like a powerful actor, like a, a company or a regime or a big company like BP, and they're doing stuff that they know people don't like, um, often for very good reason. And they look to find collaborations with other people in order to try and kind of change the discussion about it. So in this case, BP, uh, they know they're a fossil fuel company. Um, they know that they're... Um, that their history is uh, setting fire to the planet that we live on um, and continuing to profit. Um, uh, And so what they'll do is they'll use um, public relations like advertisement um, to kind of recast and and themselves and to change the discussion about themselves. So on the ad that I heard on your podcast, it it made me, um, it was annoying because I was like, what, what have the, um, what's the extra inch done to deserve being implicated in it? Like, why have they recruited you to their cause of telling me, and they told me two things on their advert. Number one, they're expanding um, sustainable energy. And number two, they're keeping oil and gas flowing from the North Sea. Like, why, what's the, why are they doing that to the extra inch? A perfectly normal Tottenham Hotspur podcast. And yeah, the answer is um, that because they're trying to convince people to listen to people that they trust, tune into a podcast they like about a sports team that they love and um, and hear all that stuff about BP at the same time. Mm, so it's a big PR exercise to kind of get people on side with what their business is currently doing. And it sounds, you know, yeah. it sounds from your description like that's a perfectly reasonable claim to make. We're expanding... Would you say renewable 
Well, you know, I would, um, if you don't mind me stopping you, um, I disagree with you a little bit. They mm. don't mind people disagreeing with them. Mm. So they don't okay. mind. And actually, one of the strategies is to make a debate out of it. Because, um, so for example, uh, when the World Cup um, was hosted in Russia and then in uh, Qatar, um, and more recently when we've had uh, a war in Ukraine and certain football clubs have had Russian benefactors, we've seen in all those situations things that people kind of generally disagree with, like chopping people's heads off or putting people in jail for being gay or uh, invading another country. These things are like, people would generally say, yeah, chopping people's heads off is like not good, you know? Mm. Like that's normal. But by, by bringing in sport and by bringing that conversation into the realm of sport, you turn it into a debate. We had years of debate over um, human rights abuses at the World Cup, uh, just years of debate about it. And the point of it is not to convince everybody to have a tall, tall cool glass of human rights abuse or or to convince everybody in the extra inch that they suddenly want like a barrel of crude oil in their house because they love it. It's to get us debating something that that wasn't a debate. Mm -hmm. In in climate change, uh, for example, um, Bill McKibben, who's a climate scientist, put it this way. He said the argument about climate change is long settled. Um, the data have been, um, been clear uh, for decades. The foundational science was done in the 19th century by people like Francis Unisfoot and um, Thomas Edison. We've known for hundreds of years what climate change is. Not only that, but the companies that are um, fueling climate change with their actions have the best data on it. So um, we've, we've got the receipts, we've got the leaked documents, we've got their own publications. They've known since the 1960s how bad climate change is getting. Their predictions were very accurate. So the point is that there's no argument and there's no debate here. The problem is a power problem. And he says the problem is that we need to get together and challenge these people in power who are yet destroying the world. Unfortunately, they're very good and they've got decades of experience at reopening that debate. So we've currently got um, international governing um, uh, uh, governing bodies and in independent scientific institutions that say we've got plenty of oil, we don't need more, we need to stop drilling it and then we need to move to something else. We've got green technologies that are cheaper, wind technology is cheaper once you've got the infrastructure and yet we've got on your um, perfectly innocent football podcast, we've got BP saying we're keeping the oil and gas flowing. That it's not that they want to convince everybody, it's that they want to reopen that debate and make it kind of normal that we would keep oil and gas flowing when everybody's saying, yeah, don't do that. Mm, I see, yeah. And they've got this obviously absolutely huge marketing spend available to them that allows them to say, right, let's put down 10 million and we'll spread that across all podcasts that have a listenership of predominantly 18 to 39 year olds um, and we'll just go at them and go at them and go at them until this becomes normalized and the idea of yes or no um, green green energy yes or no is a thing um, when as you say there's no there's no debate about it it should it should have been long since closed you know i'm um i'm a um i'm a researcher and an educator so my job is always to be um difficult and the difficult truth i would say is that it takes two to tango mm -hmm. it's it's like fine to have a company like it's we've got it we understand now there's a company it's bad it's doing mm -hmm. stuff we don't like but it does take somebody to take up that advertising money mm -hmm. you know it also makes us complicit 
as sports fans, whether mm-hmm. we like it or not. In the same way that if something bad happened on my street and I was watching it, I couldn't just say, well, you know, like, I'm not robbing a car. I'm not, I'm not beating anybody up. You're, it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the sport that we love and it's part of the, the club that we love, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's happening. And so what they're doing really is, and, it, and it's the thing that annoyed me most, is they're taking your podcast and, and your show and they're making you complicit in what, in what they're doing, whether you like it or not kind of thing, um, which is really harsh. It gives you some things you can do, um, but it is a harsh kind of experience to go through that you didn't sign up for that and your listeners didn't sign up for that, but we're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, and, and this sort of slightly sneaky way of um, coming in beneath our, our block list, like categorizing themselves as a green solution or a sustainable solution is um, beyond the pale, really. That's, that's, Man, it's that's, proper that's, sneaky, yeah. The only thing sneakier is um, the carbon footprint thing. You know that BP um, sponsors that. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, so um, carbon footprints, um, uh, you know, some people were thinking about the idea of carbon footprints at the start of the 2000s. And um, uh, BP hired a public relations company called um, Ogilvy and Mather. I don't know if there's any... um, any relation to the Ogilvy that used to play for Spurs. Um, but anyway, and uh, I think it was 2004, um, they brought out Carbon Footprints with BP's backing. And the whole, the reason that they loved Carbon Footprints so much is because it shifts that, shifts that kind of onus from the company onto people, you know, and it says, well, it's not really about our massive multi-billion dollar industry that's setting fire to the planet. It's about whether or not you recycle a can and you can go on this quick calculator and see what little things you can do in your life to change your life. Um, and it and it kind of put people off thinking about the actual problem. To me, those carbon footprints, although I understand how they can help people make changes in their life, and sometimes those changes are really good, they're also a bit like the arsonist calling you up after mm-hmm. you set your house on fire yeah. and saying, I'm using fewer matches this time and have you tried peeing on it? Like yeah. every little helps. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, to see it's hard to see something that's basically well meaning, like a carbon footprint calculator being used in such a calculating way by a yeah, by a company like BP. Oh, the cynicism is is really large scale. Um I hadn't they're proper that. cynical. They've had a long time to practice it. Yeah, they've been they've known for a long time and they they know what they're doing. And they obviously pay the best possible minds to make this work for them as well. I should think so, yeah. Ben, thank you for enlightening us. It was really interesting to talk to you. I, I really appreciated your email at the time, but uh, even more so now. Um, where could people read more about this if they were interested? Well, I wish that we had more from Tottenham Hotspur Football Club about it. Um, uh, so Spurs for four years running have been the sports positive greenest club in the Premier League. That's a UN-backed um, project, so it should be legit. Um, they're doing a lot of work in particular apparently, according to their documentation, in cutting, uh, changing the way that fans travel to games, which is like the single highest source of emissions, apparently. Okay. But they, Spurs sign up to a, a program called Count Us In. I'm kind of naturally cynical about these things, but I looked up Count Us In and I read what they said. And although it does include things that you can do in your personal life, which is important, they also included the things that I think are biggest, which are to talk about it and to join a group. Um, the main thing that, that that kind of keeps us on the track to failure, I think, is that these things go in cycles. So first of all, you'll get um, a company like BP or Shell or uh, a nasty regime will kind of turn up 
they'll gloss themselves in a veneer of positivity by appearing on a nice podcast like yours. They'll turn it into a debate and then gradually people will become normalized to it. They'll be like, oh yeah, well, BP, they're a normal company. They're, they're like part of the wallpaper and what they're doing is just kind of normal, even if I individually don't, don't agree with it. So you can stop it being normalized by continuing to talk about it and kind of telling the truth about it. You can work with others so you're not alone on it. Um, so you can share that discussion with others. It's a really big thing. Um, I, I think that that's the first thing. The second thing I think is that we have to be aware um, of what's going on in our sport and, and in the sport that we love, because I love football, but there's so much sports washing. And even if it's occurring to other clubs, you know, I don't think we can hide that it's, it's kind of constantly mm-hmm. looming on the horizon. Um, yeah. Who will own the club? Um, what will happen to the club? Uh, what will they get involved in? And I think we need to be always alive to it and awake to it and ready to to kind of look at what we can do, even if right now it's kind of, you know, is it, I mean, I'm not going to boycott Newcastle, but um, would there be a day that I'd want to boycott Spurs? I don't know. I, you know I what think, I mean? I think, unfortunately, it's inevitable that um, we'll have those decisions to make in the well, sort of medium-term future. It's a tricky one, and it's the reason they go, because there are a lot of people who, no matter what happens, and I understand it and I respect it, would never boycott Tottenham Hotspur. Never. Mm-hmm. Because it's what they've done forever. They mm-hmm. might have been going to a match for 40 years, or they might have had it passed to the, from their dad or their granddad or their mum. Like, that's, that's real culture. And so um, a regime or a company or whatever that wants to be in the football discussion, which is like the world's biggest discussion. If you're talking football, you're everywhere. If they want to be part of it, they can just hitch themselves to a football club because because the cost of giving up a football great club is so great for some people, they, they simply won't do it and it's understandable. Mm. So then the question is, if you're not gonna just like back out, you know, you're not gonna boycott it and cut it off. Like what what can you do to transform your participation? Can you Can you protest? Can you take different action? Can you be part of a group that pushes against it? Are you just going to make sure that you're always thinking about it and ready to do something good? Um, we all want to make the world a better place and, and we all kind of love our club and the, and the sport. So it's always good to be ready to, to think about, about the people that were corrupted, basically. I know that sounds really harsh, but I think that's what they do. They, they're kind of corrupting it and getting into it and turning it into something that it's not. Turning it into, say, yeah, a whitewashing scheme for a, for a fossil fuel company rather than a football club or a football podcast. Um, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It is hard. I don't know what you think. What do no, you think? No, I think I think you're right that the least we can do is go into this with our eyes open. Um, and as much as it's easy to use football as escapism and just want to have an hour and a half to yourself to just enjoy your team, there's so much more around that going on that you may or may not know that you're participating in by by having your hour and a half of escapism and and going into that with your eyes open is important i think yeah i agree people should have the freedom to just enjoy themselves without having to worry about stuff like that like i really think so but unfortunately they're really exploitative those companies and and governments betting companies i haven't said that but they're really exploitative Mm -hmm. always getting in and i i think i think it's right to be wary um and it's right to have our eyes open and most of all it's right to talk about it and tell the truth about it when it happens because that's the first start you know when um when i emailed you i said i think this is like the emperor's new clothes i think everybody will hear an advert for that and be like, what is that doing on my sports podcast? Yeah. And it and it's the act of talking about it is the first step to 
to not accepting it and not seeing it as normal that a fossil fuel company would be burnishing its reputation using the extra inch. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, this has been amazing. And I think, you know, it's the start of a, a longer conversation. I'm sure that other people will have some some thoughts on this. And uh, yeah, I'd welcome emails from, from other listeners, um, podcast at theextrainch.co.uk, if you've got something to say about this. Um, but thank you so much, Ben, in the meantime, for um, sharing your expertise with us. That's okay. I love to, to hear from other people's perspectives and hearing the interviews on your podcast are always great. Um, I always listen to them all. They're really great. Um, yeah, I'm a long time listener, first time caller. So thank you. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When I started drinking AG1 daily, I noticed a few things changed in terms of my health, my spirit, my general get up and go. AG1 is there for me. It's my backup. Every morning, I head over to my trusty shaker and scoop and I know it has my back. As I'm shaking my 75 combinations of vitamins and nutrients, I'm hoping that Big Cootie is also thinking up 75 combinations he can get his own back on Matty Cash. Start every day with your bit of Cootie in you. Get AG1 to be your backup. It's like all the good bits of Romero, but no red, no dangerous follow through or VAR. Just green, green goodness. And you can also add a squeeze of lemon if you like, but a little bit of extra zing like I do. Get your backup sorted. Get AG1 in you every day, mate. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash extra inch. That's drinkag1.com forward slash extra inch. Check it out. So Nathan, you, you you put it in as a marker earlier that we used to talk about our fatiguing in the last 25 minutes, half an hour of the match. Uh, so I first noticed Lo Celso as very fatigued. I think he also got kicked. Is anyone else worried about Lo Celso having been kicked in this game? I, I don't know why. I just... He was limping a little and I was panicking that he was hurt. Oh, great. Yeah. I can't worry about him as well. I, I, I need to, there needs to be a cutoff of a, of a panic about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was really tiring. I mean, it's very reasonable that Brian Hill was was tired. Kulisevsky looked knackered. The whole team really was just looking shattered. And of course, our bench was, was pretty thin. Um, in fact, speaking of that, Adam TDM said... I know Windy hates to see two goalkeepers on the bench, so I started thinking about why that might be preferable. The only thing I could come up with is that there's an under-21 game a day before and Ange weighs up the value of playing in that versus the value of sitting on the bench. Could that be an excuse for not having Iago Santiago or someone else on the bench? Well, Iago Santiago is injured, unfortunately. Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, half our youth players are injured too. Yeah. It's not just the first team. Iago Santiago, injured. Mikey Moore, injured. Uh, George Abbott, injured. <laughs> All of our players are just going down at the moment. 
Um, yeah, the one thing about the starting lineup that that I'm uh, not starting lineup, the the uh, team selection, I suppose I should say, that irritated me was yes, we had both uh, Fraser Forster and Brandon Austin on the bench, two goalkeepers on the bench. I hate it, and we only named eight of our possible nine substitutes. So, um, who should have taken those two gaps, Wendy? Uh, let's say. Uh, Tyrese Hall and Niall John, okay. maybe, uh, or Rio Kayamaton. I think th- these are all players that have trained with the first team and could have sat on the bench. I, I'd, I'm not saying he'd have brought them on, and, and clearly he wouldn't have done, otherwise he'd have had them on the bench. But uh, I do think it's a pity. I do think it's a pity, especially when you're leaving a, a bench place unclaimed. So I think there's a bigger picture thing at play here, which is we as a club need to change our strategy around youth players to ensure that our youth players actually stay with us. So they believe as a pipeline, they believe as an opportunity to play. Um, and I think Ange is becoming complicit in our in our uh, non-playing of youth players. I said at the start of the year, I didn't think this was a season where he would play many youth players. I think he will probably take a good look at them over the next six to 12 months and, and maybe then we'll start to integrate some particularly those coming back from loan but I think when you're in a crisis situation with numbers as we are I think you have to dip into the academy I think you have to look for um, skill sets elsewhere and uh, you know I do understand bringing on Oliver Skip for Brian Hill because Skip is acclimatized to Angie's system yeah. and he likes him as a player he likes, seems to like him as a person he thinks he's a good trainer but I didn't like the sub as it was happening, and in hindsight, I liked it even less. I think it killed our momentum at the time. I think Jamie Donnelly was an, a much more appropriate sub, but of course, he hasn't played a single minute of men's football, which is, I assume, Ange's rationale. He's going to have to play Jamie Donnelly over the coming weeks. He, I mean, he'll get some minutes somewhere, and I just thought, at 2-1 down at home, why not now? Why not just like give him the chance to show what he can do, give him the platform? He's just come off the back of three matches for England where he's been prolific in goals and assists. He's on a high. Give him a go. Brought Valise on. What did you think of that move? Did he touch the ball? He won a free kick. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> Success. Um, well, I'm, okay. Uh, the, the first thing I would say is um, I don't think that Phillips or Dorrington are, are ready for first-team football at all, in my opinion. Uh, for two uh, and reasons. also centre-back is a tricky one. It's... it's... I think it's hard to bring it. Oh, Phillips is injured as well. Oh yeah, way. of course he is. I forgot about that. Uh, but it's, it's really anymore. it's it's really exposing to throw a, an eighteen year old in at centre back. I think. And then with Donnelly, like we we in this game, we just had Lacelso and Klusevski, you know, announce themselves as as creative central players, viable creative central players for us. Um, but I take the point generally. I, 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 there was a point a few weeks ago where I, I wanted to see Santiago before he got injured um, because we were missing that profile so badly. Um, there's a question. There's a question about injuries that is um, that is related to fatigue. Could you could you read us that question, please, Wendy? Sure. This is from uh, Kala Falvik, who says this might be like swearing in the church, but are the injuries Angie's fault? Is he training the players in a way they're not built for yet? Have we seen similar trends at his previous clubs? Could there be something more to this injury crisis than just bad luck? So I'm going to take injuries and fatigue as a single thing here because I think they're strongly related. My answer to this question is essentially, uh, controversially, yes, <laughs> right? And um, the way that we play is uh, we go hard for 60 minutes. 
we go very hard for 60 minutes. Um, the game plan is by 60 minutes, we should be up three goals and then we can kind of coast a little bit. We can manipulate the game state. Um, we can play however we want to play for the end of the game and, and it'll be fine. And obviously anytime you're therefore not up by three goals, certainly not by two mm-hmm. or two goals or even trailing at that point, the game plan gets undermined. Um, yeah, I talked about this last week. I think that like, we're we're sprinters we're athletic sprinters and we go out and we spend ourselves um and then that's going to leave us in trouble sometimes for the the closing half hour of the game and it it did in this game that that red lining is going to increase the chance of injuries it's going to leave us fatigued um i think that yes and we talked about this again on on the previous episode um more rotation you you know using all five subs nearly every week would have helped us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so that is a genuine criticism of Ange. But whereas I'm saying, yes, it is the fault of the style of football that we play, that we have so many injuries, I think, and that we gas out in games, I also think that that is just something that you have to accept, right? We can compare to last season, where I banged on and on about this, is that we had trained a bunch of marathon runners and we would go for a 2K warm-up run before the game because that, in order to try to get some spark into the beginning, so we went into the game warmed up and we would jog about and lose second balls and jog about and lose second balls and then eventually at 80 minutes maybe 70 minutes the opposition would be tired and we'd have our moment and we tried to come back in the game and that worked a few times and we talked about how mentality monsters we were and then eventually the shit football that we played for 70 minutes wore us down and we could no longer handle playing that fucking football anymore man you kind of got to pick your poison either either we train to last or we train to go hard um and if you can somehow manage to to bridge the gap where you go hard for 90 minutes you're probably going to gas out actually on your long-term periodization which means that in may you're done in right and we've seen that before at some point you're going to have to be the second fittest player between you and the opponent on the pitch in some way and that's just the reality of football and playing this way is going to cause you to get injured more often and you just kind of have to accept that if you want to have the ball if you want to go and press and win the ball if you want to play fast exciting football that that's the reality of athletic competition. So yes, it's Postacoglu's fault, but I wouldn't change it because it's so, so much better than the alternative. When we already have an entire first 11 out nearly with injuries and you're bringing in a bunch of players who haven't been playing off the bench and certainly not starting games, it's going to even more be the case that, as we saw in this game, 59 minutes, yes, Ben Davies was poor with Watkins. Yes, Rory didn't recognise the situation and get over, but all also, look how much time, go back five seconds, how much time on the ball every single Villa player has in that run-up, on that play. Sun doesn't press their deepest player. Is that Louise? Uh, Hoybjerg doesn't get across. The Celso is just not even watching the play because they're all gassed out at that point and they all desperately need a break. So yeah, again, maybe if Lacelso had played more minutes earlier, although he got injured, etc. Hoiberg did come in, and he was still not able to do ninety minutes because it's so fucking hard to do, man. 
It's so tough. The other thing, one more thing, and we have a question on this. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, Sir Isaac Lyme asks, what did Emery do tactically when he brought on Bailey and Tillemans at halftime? So throughout the game, um, Villa defended in a 4-4-2. In the first half, they attacked in a 4-4-2. In the second half, having brought on Tielemans for Diaby, they still defended in the 4-4-2 because Tielemans played as the second forward. But in possession, Tielemans dropped in so they could play three midfielders. And so we're tired and we're matched man for man in midfield in the second half so they can overrun us there and um, that's how all of that ties together and it it helps that he can bring on Tielemans he can bring on Bailey he can bring on Jacob Ramsey and these kind of guys and we had to turn to Skip and Villiers which was just a, shows a measure of, of where the two squads are right now I think um, I think Man City though in terms of pressing and They've kind of found a, a happy medium. They have yeah. these massive giant because they're not they're definitely not as high pressing or as interesting a, a watch as they used to be. I find Manchester City to be actually quite boring. I don't find them that attractive. I don't find them that attacking or that front foot. They seem to be in a nicer way. They're they're um, West Brom. Wh- wh- like why Armani. have you chosen to say that? No, but they do. <laughs> they're like West Brom in Armani suits. They've got these massive <laughs> centre backs who who cut. They they look nice. They've been five to a them. tailor. They got five of them who've been to a tailor, and then they got this massive striker that they could just whack the ball to. I honestly, low key, Guardiola is turned Man City into West Brom. Honestly, I think he makes a reasonable point, Wendy. I, of course, I make a reasonable <laughs> point. I always, I'm a reasonable man. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's some truth I, to this. I think there's genuinely some truth to this. I think that they play. Um, like when when Guardiola first came into the Premier League, it was a stereotype, but also true that the physicality of the Premier League caused Man City problems. And now they are the most physical team in the league. They play six giants, rapid giants on the pitch. And yes, they still play intricate, high, high position football. And yes, they still press high, but they also take it easy for, and this relates to the previous discussion on managing fatigue, they will spend 30 minutes just passing around the back throughout the game. They will spend 30 minutes... Okay, no, that's not true. They will spend 10 minutes defending in a deep or or medium shape uh, uh, and, and relax their high press for a little bit. Maybe this is the secret and maybe this is what we should be doing in order to, to balance things. Um but yeah, they kind of take their foot off the pedal um, for significant yeah. periods of the of the season and the game. And they love a corner. They absolutely <laughs> love a corner because they got all these giants. I can't remember who um, who who matey boy. What was his? What was the West Brom manager? Mowbray was it Mowbray? Pulis. Who he used to have Pulis. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, Guardiola is, is Pulis, but in a in an Armani suit. I think the other thing with City is because they essentially have two players for every position. They are able to rotate, yeah, um, and and they do a lot. Uh, we're not there yet. We're, we're we're really lacking squad depth. We're really lacking squad quality. Um, we need to make some signings, uh, and I think a lot of the podcasts over the coming weeks are going to be focused on which players we should prioritise and which positions we should prioritise. Uh, the suggestion is today that we're going to prioritise a centre-back and a central midfielder, which I thought was interesting. Centre midfielder? Why? Who? What role? And I'm assuming... It, yeah, it has to be a six, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, sweet. Um, um, for that role, I really like Redondo Jr. I'm also a, almost as high on um, uh, Wharton. Adam Wharton? Of yeah, Blackburn, um, big physical, fast, extremely technically gifted playmaker from the from the number six role. Really, really like him, and obviously, um, 
Whereas maybe Redondo has the higher potential ceiling. Um, he's more of an unknown because of the two different leagues they play in. Watson would be a safer bet, which is not to say that every player who plays well in the championship would also that necessarily play well in a, in a top six Premier League team. Um, but I feel really good about Watson. On centre backs, we were linked to, uh, uh, Todibo, who, um, who I tweeted that he currently plays the right-sided, right-footed, aggressive role. Um, but he can also play on the left, has played on the left a little bit. He's a very technically gifted player and therefore could play on the left comfortably in possession, in my opinion. I also think that despite the fact that he currently plays the aggressive role, he has the tools that he needs, especially in his pace, um, but also in his general 1v1 ability um, to play the Van de Ven role. So for me, Todibo um, might be the best option in the market because he could play third centre back and cover both roles and do so at a near exact level of uh, Romero and, and Van de Ven. He's, he's really, really good. That's why we probably won't get him because other clubs should be onto him to play the first choice, uh, you know, guaranteed locked on first 11 player um, for them. Um, but nice that we're looking. I would literally pass out if we signed Redondo's son. It would, <laughs> it would be the greatest signing in our club's history. I loved Redondo. He 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 just like that's that's my midfielder. He was a joy. He was a sensation. And obviously we were never good enough to get him and his his legs fell away. But getting his son would be the next best thing. I I, I would be such a happy person. Buddy, do you have anything to say or share on Venables? Um, yeah, I could, I could do a little bit. Yeah, <clears throat> do you can we do that right at the end? Oh, okay, sweet. So I've got okay, one. Sorry. I've got one more question. I want to get in. It might, it might turn into two questions. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Kieran says, "Do we think that having to sit on the sidelines for the last few very frustrating games might finally drive home to Romero how his moments of madness are needlessly debilitating to the team? If he kept his head against Chelsea, I feel we'd have comfortably seen off Wolves and Villa." I hope so. I hope this has been a learning curve for him. I hope as he stood there in those terrible jeans <laughs> that he realised that he, he could have done something here. He could have assisted us and he has let everybody down. And I hope, I sincerely hope, his stupidity will now be curbed. It's, it's all fun and games. It's, yeah, oh, it's funny. Romero's going to get you, but be be smarter. I hope I hope he's learned something. I disagree. I thought the jeans are fine. <laughs> yeah, it is a, a surprise. <laughs> I also really, really hope he learns his lesson from this, man. I really do. Because, like, like before, when we're playing terrible football and he misses a few games, like, you know, <laughs> it's not the worst thing in the world. But I hope he, you know, I hope he really feels it. I hope that he mm. he learns to keep his head off the back of this. But probably not. Probably he's, you know, thinking about the revenge he'll get on Matty Cash or something. We all had one mate that we, we liked to go out with back in the day who was, you know, he'd have a few drinks and be a bit funny. But then... Eventually, when you get kicked out of a nightclub or kicked out of a pub because he's being an, an idiot, that it gets tiring. So I'm hoping this is the moment that uh, Romero kind of grows up and, and stops getting in trouble with bouncers. While we're talking about suspensions and sanctions, I do just want to take a moment to reflect on Matty Cash's challenge on Bentancourt and also his challenge on Matt Doherty. Um, I said in the Chelsea game that I felt that the Destiny Doggy should have been sent off. And that was for a two-footed lunge where he made absolutely no contact with the Chelsea player. And I still believe that. I still believe that that tackle... Um, well, in fact, the reason I believe that he should be sent off is because that tackle should be outlawed. You shouldn't be allowed to jump in in an uncontrolled way two-footed because you can do serious damage. 
what Matty Cash has done twice to Spurs players is damage them to the extent where they're they're having months out. And from my perspective, it's it's easy to see how they were, were injured so badly because the tackle is late, it's high, and frankly, it's violent. And I was quite shocked that that wasn't reviewed. I was shocked that the Doherty one wasn't reviewed at the time, and I was shocked that the uh, the Bentancur one wasn't. I think because it's one-footed, in theory, he kind of gets away with it, but there's so much potential to do serious damage to a player, and there's obvious intent there as well. And I really hate that because it's one-footed or appears one-footed, he just gets away with it, and that's fine. Like... If if we're going to try and outlaw these reckless cha- challenges with two feet, you also need to take advice and start to outlaw these same reckless challenges with one when there's that level of force and intent, I believe. Uh, and, and I really am just gutted for Bentancourt, absolutely gutted for him. And one more comment on Bentancourt, actually. Uh, I spotted late in the game... Villa were doing a lot of time wasting, a lot of time wasting. Martinez was the worst at it, but there was all kinds of time wasting going on. Bentancourt gets up off the bench at one point and he charges over to the fourth official and starts wagging his finger at him about the time wasting, screaming about Villa's time wasting. And um, I think it was Matt Wells had to like stand up and kind of get between him and the fourth official and, and calm it down a bit. Uh, I, I enjoyed that moment. Final question uh, is is from me to you guys. Uh, what do you think we do against City? Obviously, we've seen a completely new lineup, a new style of lineup uh, compared to the the Wolves game where we played that stodgy midfield. For the City game, obviously Benton calls out. Basuma is back. Saar might also be back. Same again. Changes. Um, I think we may see Brian dropped and Kulisewski go back wide, which means Lo Celso, Basuma and Saar probably, I think, will start. And that means Kulisewski, Johnson and Son up front. And I think the back four remains the same. Uh, Spurs women, although results haven't been great for them this season, are playing much, much better football than they played last season. They're playing attacking, high possession football. Um, and they stuck to those guns against Man City and they lost 7-0. So... Um, <laughs> that's that's the end of my comment uh we need to say a few words about terry venables who sadly passed away this week um do you have any memories of of terry venables body well venables was the manager that was in charge of tottenham when i started supporting tottenham and it was a very different time obviously to what it is now there wasn't the kind of media saturation of football this was pre-premier league so i don't even remember how i used to watch games or or you just didn't unless you went there and um He's kind of one of those characters that you remember the good stuff and you don't remember the bad stuff because Spurs weren't very good. You know, we finished third in 1990, building up to the World Cup where we had Gaza really. He was he was impeccable. Often we talk about his 91 form, but he was excellent going into that World Cup after, as he was pushing for a place. And Venables became intertwined with my, my journey into falling in love with Tottenham. So even though he kind of went on and... the his kind of reputation was ruined by the financial troubles and everything else around that happened with him. He will always remain key to the reason why I support Tottenham. I don't have a Tottenham history and I chose Tottenham because of, because of the team that he built. So I'll always be thankful for him for that. And also he's the last guy to win an FA Cup and the FA Cup was important. There's, if you really want to see how important the FA Cup is, go and check out our fixtures in that 90... 91 season once we made it to the final it just became that was it 
every, every just switched off and it was all about the FA Cup final. We didn't care about league form anymore. It was just about doing that. Gaza was injured and it was all about getting him fit. And that's how important the FA Cup is to this club. And it's one of the things I'll always hold against Pochettino that he didn't respect what it means to us. But uh, yeah, very sad news that Venables has died. It just gives all, all a reminder that, that you know we're all getting older and our, our time will come to an end. You have been listening to The Extra Inch with me, Windy, my sidekick and best friend, Barney, and our tactics guy, Nate If you like this, there's plenty more at patreon.com forward slash The Extra Inch. Production is by Nathan A. Clark. Our logo, artwork and website are designed by Creighton Miller. Our music is by David Lindmer. You can find him on Instagram at David Lindmer. Do check him out. He's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us at podcast at theextrainch.co.uk. Subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. And most importantly, be sure to tell all of your Spurs friends. Shout out to the X-Subs. We love every single last one of you. And of course, come on you Spurs. Thank you.